Good morning. So Brooke, um, the person in that video, is working a 4 a.m. to 4 p.m. shift, and she's going to be really relieved to know that she wasn't here to see herself on the screen. I, I just have a feeling about that. Uh, it's great to see everyone here today. Uh, nice to see uh, so much green and gold in the place. Um, I, I did appreciate the little preview we had last week with some wildcat colors up here on the stage. It was a nice reminder that NMU Sunday was coming. And uh, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't make fun of anybody because last week, about four in the morning on Sunday, I woke up in a cold sweat. I thought, it's NMU Sunday, I'm preaching, I've got nothing. And uh, so it was about two seconds of panic and then I realized, oh no, no, that's, that's next week. Did it ever happen to you? Yeah. Like when I was a journalist, I would wake up in the middle of the night uh, thinking that I, I, I missed some kind of a swear word in a headline or something and it, and it made it into the paper. So different, uh, different concerns. So we made it, here we are. Uh, everything is good. Thank you, Pastor Kevin, for recognizing the university community and everyone who's associated with it. Thank you, Silver Creek Church, for your incredible support of NMU Chi Alpha over the past three-plus years uh, as we work on campus to build a community that's on mission with Jesus. That's, when, we, when you think about Chi Alpha, that's, that's, our, that's our purpose. We're a community on mission with Jesus, and we could not do it without you. And uh, Pastor Kevin mentioned uh, about kingdom builders. Whenever you give to king, king, kingdom builders, you are giving uh, to help us proclaim the good news and make disciples on NMU's campus. So we appreciate that. I want to start out with a question this morning. Have you ever heard, um, ever heard someone say that there are two types of people in the world? Yeah, I think, I think we've all heard that. We've all seen the memes. There are two types of people in the world. Uh, some examples, uh, we have people who eat Kit Kat bars, one segment at a time. <laughs> and then we have people who eat them like psychopaths. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not even going to embarrass anybody and, and make you raise your hand and, and say which way you eat it. Um, you know, two types of people. We have people who eat bacon, and we have people who hate themselves. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, so last year in Chi Alpha, in every one of my messages, I tried to work in a C.S. Lewis quote, because you know, we call him the patron saint of NMU Chi Alpha. He was a professor and writer, came to faith late, uh, later in life. Uh, so I worked in a C.S. Lewis quote and everything. This year, I think my goal is to work in a bacon reference in everyone. So I think we're, we're going all right. So two types of people in the world. We have people who like surprises, people who don't. Um, does anybody, everybody like surprises? Yeah, we're not really sure. So reach under your seat. No, no don't. No. no need to do that. You're not surprised to learn that I'm not a good person. Um, so I, I had a really cool surprise about a week and a half ago. I was uh, walking into the door of the grocery store, and uh, just as, as I was getting to the door, a guy walked out in front of me, and I recognized him. And this, this was a guy I worked with when we were students at NMU years and years ago and I hadn't seen him in 15 or 16 years. And uh, I was going in the door, he was passing in front of me, he wasn't looking my way, so I called out to him and said, Dwayne! And he stopped and looked at me, and I was about to introduce myself, because uh, I don't expect anybody to remember or recognize me after that uh, period of time. You know, we change, we, uh, 
we gain a little weight, we, uh, we lose some weight, we gain some more, you know, I'll own it. Um, so I, I don't expect him to recognize me. So I said, Dwayne, and he looks at me, and uh, he says, Mike Murray. And uh, yeah, we hadn't seen each other in 15 or 16 years. So I'm standing there on the sidewalk, and we're talking for 30 minutes, just getting caught up on life, and he's working on a project that I can help him with. So uh, he, he's saying, like, this, this is like a divine moment. That's what he said. And I'm thinking, you have no idea. Like, you have, you have no idea. It was, it, was, it was a total surprise, totally unexpected. Uh, he, never, he said he never grocery shops, and I usually don't go uh, to that store. But there we were. So what are, what are the odds? Um, and I, I'm really excited to see where God leads that surprising reconnection. I want to th- talk about surprises this morning. Uh, I want to look at a story in the Gospel of Mark that's surprising on a number of levels, that's surprising to different people in different ways, and it contains some principles for us that can help us surprise our world, whether that world is a university campus, whether it's your workplace, whether it's your family, or your neighborhood. In NMU Chi Alpha, we are followers of Jesus or, or else, people who are interested in learning about the idea and claims of Jesus. So this semester, we're using the Gospel of Mark as, as our framework to study the life and teachings uh, of Jesus. We're doing that in Chi Alpha, so I thought it would be appropriate to do that, uh, to go to Mark this morning as well. And then later in the semester, when everybody has forgotten this, um, and I need a little break, and I don't have time to prepare a message. I can just pull this one back out and share it on a Tuesday night in Chi Alpha. Um, it's a win-win. Uh, I probably won't do that. But So I want to look at Mark. So everybody's going to pay close attention, and then they'll say, wait, didn't you already talk about that? So Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. It's a great story. Uh, I'll read uh, all 12 verses. We're uh, reading in the New Living Translation. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. The book of Mark is one of the four Gospels in the New Testament. Basically, these these books are mini-biographies of the life of Jesus, told slightly from different angles with slightly different purposes. And Mark's number one purpose 
in writing his gospel is to show readers that Jesus is the Son of God. So whenever you're reading Mark in your, in your daily devotions, whenever Pastor Kevin is preaching on Mark, just keep that in mind. Mark wants to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, this is his goal. Uh, we know this because we're smart and we're wise and we're above average. And also because Mark tells us that. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very first sentence he wrote, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So a little you know, theological digging there will help us to realize what, what's happening. So Mark tells us what he's doing. He's clear about his purpose, and everything he writes from that point on helps to support his main thesis. Mark writes, Jesus is the Son of God. He did this. Then he did this. Then he did this. Then he did this. It's, it's a you know, little more sophisticated than that, but you get the idea. He's supporting that idea. In chapter 1, Mark sets the stage for uh, the life of Jesus by showing us Jesus' baptism when a voice from heaven said, you are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy, supporting his main thesis. He shows Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, calling his first disciples, casting out an evil spirit, healing many people, preaching the good news of the kingdom throughout the region. And it shows us, it shows us that Jesus healed a leper and then told, who told everyone about it, despite what Jesus told him. Jesus told him, don't tell anybody this. You can see this in, in chapter one. He said, don't tell anybody, uh, but go to, go to Jerusalem, do the cleansing that you need to do. But this leper went and told everybody he saw what Jesus had done. So word spreads about Jesus, and soon large crowds are following him wherever he goes. They're surrounding him. They're, uh, they're constricting his movements. And if, if you're starting a movement, this, this sounds like a good way to do it, right? You want a big crowd? But this isn't really what Jesus wants. So here, here we are in chapter 2. Jesus returns to his home base in a town called Capernaum, where his disciples Peter and Andrew are from. And many biblical scholars believe that this house that we're talking about here in Mark chapter 2 was in fact Peter's home. Uh, for about a year and a half of Jesus' ministry, he was based out of Capernaum, and, and scholars think that he lived with Peter. And if you go to Capernaum today, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel, you will find a church that's built over a house that tradition says is Peter's house, and where tradition says this incredible scene takes place. So the, uh, the spaceship-looking thing there is, is a modern church that's built over a stone house that the people for centuries have said this was Peter's house. So we can take a trip there later this year and, and see it for ourselves. <laughs> so this is a familiar story to many of us. Uh, it's one of Jesus' best-known miracles uh, simply because of the circumstances. Uh, these, these guys <laughs> tear apart a roof and let their friend down. So it's, it's very memorable. But every time that we hear a story repeated, there's a danger that it will lose some of its power. Like, if, like one of my favorite movies is The Shawshank Redemption. Um, I saw it when it first came out a long time ago, and it, it was amazing, and then every time I'm, I'm in a hotel room somewhere, I turn on the TV, there is Shawshank Redemption on. Like, it's always on somewhere um, around the world. And the, you know, the, more, the more times I see it, it, it loses that initial impact. And the same thing happens when we read stories uh, in the Bible. So let's try to picture this scene with fresh eyes. 
because it's, it's shocking, it's surprising, it's unexpected, and the surprises can show us some things about God. One thing I like to do when I'm, when I'm reading the Gospels or, or other passages in, in Scripture that are narrative, that are stories, uh, I like to try to place myself in the scene and try to imagine uh, the events and, and the conversation through the eyes of some of the characters in that story you know, from different, different points of view. We've done this a few times in, um, in our Chi Alpha gatherings. I hand out uh, a sheet with a passage of Scripture on it and have, have the students pick pick one of the characters in there, and then try to, try to live through this scene through this person's eyes. So we did that one time, and I asked, so who did you pick? Like, who were you in the story? And one of the students said, Jesus. And I thought, hmm, this is someone I need to keep an eye on. <laughs> and uh, this person, by the way, is not here today, so we're good. We're not, we're not going to try to pretend to be Jesus this morning or ever. Um, instead, we'll observe this story, observe this scene through the eyes of five individuals who were surprised by what they experienced. And then out of these moments of surprise, we'll draw two principles that help explain the kingdom of God to us. So let's start out with the four friends. Like these, these guys are very intriguing to me. The four friends who bring their paralyzed man. Notice the Bible doesn't explicitly say that they were friends of his. It just says four men carry another man on a mat. But I'm going to say that their actions are close enough for us. Like, this is, this is what friends should do. Uh, we don't know much about them. We, we assume they're from Capernaum, but we don't know their names. Uh, we don't know their ages. We don't know their occupations. We don't even know if they were really followers of Jesus. The text doesn't tell us that. But whoever they were, they realized that Jesus was the only one who could help their paralyzed friend. Jesus was famous at this point. They'd heard about this miracle worker who used to be a carpenter. Like, what, what, kind, of a, what kind of story is this? So they did whatever they could to get him to Jesus. So ima imagine the scene through their eyes. They hear that Jesus is back in town. They remember the stories uh, about him healing other people. Maybe they've even talked with someone who's been healed by Jesus. So word, word is getting, getting around, and they want to make this connection. So they, they make the connection. They care about their friend so much that they go to his house, pick up the mat that he's lying on, which is probably his bed, and they carry him across town. They, they get to the house and see that it's packed. The doorway is blocked, and no one in the crowd is making room for them. If they want to get their friend to Jesus, they'll have to find another way. I have no idea where this idea came from. Well, I have some, I have some idea where this idea came from. But they, they, they see the situation. We can't get in the door. We'll have to make another door. The door's blocked. We will have to make another door. So houses in that time and place were typically one story with stairs on the outside making the roofs accessible. So these four men decide at some point, we have to get up onto the roof. There's no way we're going to carry this guy all the way back home. Jesus is going to have to do something with him. It's hot, we're tired, he's heavy, 
We're not going back. So up they go. So now they're on the roof trying to figure out where Jesus is below them. Because the, the only thing more embarrassing than digging a hole through somebody's roof is, <laughs> is digging it in the wrong place. So, so, you know, maybe they're listening. Maybe they send a guy down and peek in a window to try to figure out where he is. And then they get to work. So the, the construction methods uh, at this time, it, it would have been a stone house, probably, a stone house, and then wooden beams across the tops of the walls, maybe three feet or so across. And then on top of the beams, there would be branches, like laid, laid across the, the beams. And then on top of the branches, there'd be some kind of thatching, like, uh, like palm, palm leaves or reeds, kind of maybe even interwoven above the sticks. On top of that, there would be a layer of dried mud, like, like adobe. And then on top of on top of the mud, there would be some tile of some kind. So after the, after the men pick their spot, like, okay, yeah, Jesus is right down there. They, they pick their spot, and they start ripping away the tile, and they start digging through the mud and the thatching and the sticks. And then they would, you know, finally have a, have a hole and start pulling. So imagine this. There's mud crumbling and falling, right? And Jesus is sitting down there teaching. And, uh, you know, one thing about teachers and speakers, they, they don't want to have any distraction. Like, the, Jesus has a point he's trying to make, and everybody's doing this. Like, what is this? So, you know, finally, a beam of light breaks through. And so how long does it take to dig a hole six feet long by a few feet wide, but they, they just stick to it. They're sweaty and dirty. The people down below are calling them bad names, even though Jesus is there. Uh, and finally, all their work pays off, and they lower their paralyzed friend right to the feet of Jesus the healer. They see him turn to their friend. They see him look up to them. They don't say anything to him. He doesn't see anything to them. But Jesus turns to the friend and says the words they've been waiting for all day. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they look at each other like, what? <laughs> and the shock registers on their faces and they think, isn't, isn't he a healer? We know he is. How could he not know what our friend needs? It's not difficult to see. But Jesus knows something they don't. They think their friend's biggest issue is his paralysis, his physical condition. That's what they think. But Jesus knows the biggest problem is his spiritual condition. It's the sin in his life that has separated him from the God who created him and loves him. And Jesus knows that the ability to walk and run and jump isn't going to make this guy whole. That's not his greatest need. No physical condition, no material prosperity is more important than having a right relationship with God. As important as those other things are, his primary need is to have his sins forgiven. So this is the surprising moment for these guys on the roof. Jesus surprises everyone in the room, everyone on the roof, with his declaration, your sins are forgiven. And this gives us our first principle. Before God gives you what you want, he gives you what you need.
before God gives you what you want, he gives you what you need, even if you don't know you need it. The second principle is related to the first, and we, we come to this one through the experience of the paralyzed man himself. So we just talked about his friends or these guys who, who carried him across town. We don't know this man's name. We don't know his family. We don't even know if he asked to be brought there. Or we don't know that he even wanted to be brought there. Because if his friends decided they're going to take him to Jesus, what is he going to do about it? Right? Like, no, I don't want to go. Too bad, you're coming. In that culture, any physical ailment or, uh, or abnormality would be seen as punishment from God for their sin or sins of their parents. That's, that's how the, our culture uh, looked at illness. It's, it's judgment. If you're sick, it's proof that you or your parents have sinned. That's what their culture said. And because of this shame, he probably didn't get out much. He was, he was content just being out of the public spotlight. But this day, his friends are taking him to the healer. And what do you imagine this conversation is like? I, I, pic- I picture once they get to the house, it's just monologue. It's this guy talking and the other guy's ignoring him. I hear, uh, hey guys, why are we going up these steps? Silence. Uh, hey guys, what are you listening for? Silence. Guys, what are you doing to Peter's roof? Silence. You better not be doing what I think you're going to do. He's helpless, and these so-called friends of his are dropping him, disturbing the teacher, ruining their neighbor's house, and ever so carefully lowering him into the room. Do you think he's heard about Jesus? Yeah, I I think he has. And if nothing else, his friends probably told him about this miracle worker. And as he's slowly, hopefully, hopefully slowly being dropped into the room in front of Jesus, do you think he started to get hopeful? His friends certainly were. So his mat comes to rest at the feet of Jesus. Jesus looks up, sees the faith of these guys on the roof. He looks back at the paralyzed man and sees something deeper, something that he can't even articulate. And Jesus forgives the man, which is shocking to everybody in that room. It, it shocks the crowd, it shocks the religious people, probably shocks the man himself. And it shocks us as well, because he gives no indication of repentance. Because we, we know the pattern, right? Um, we know that the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, he opens our eyes uh, about our separation from God, and then we repent. We tell God that we want to turn, we want to follow him, and then Jesus forgives. But you know, there's, there's no place in the Bible where there's forgiveness without repentance. And yet, it looks like this is what happens in this story. So what's happening here? I, I think there's a clue in verse 8. It says that Jesus knew in his spirit what the religious people were thinking in their hearts. They're questioning him without saying anything, and he reads their minds. He knows what's in the hearts of the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, and he also knows what's in this man's heart, and he sees what's in our hearts as well. John 2, 25 says, no one needed to tell Jesus about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. So Jesus perceives something in the heart of this man that Timothy Keller calls a partial, fragmentary, imperfect, inarticulate longing for grace and mercy, and Jesus responds to it. 
Jesus is so aggressive with his grace that he creates his own opportunities to give it. This, this paralyzed man probably couldn't even articulate what he truly wanted from Jesus, but Jesus saw that glimmer of it and gave it to him anyway. Our first principle was before God gives you what you want, he gives you what you need. Our second one is closely related to it. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Because Jesus made us, he knows us better than we know ourselves, and because he knows us so well, we can trust him to give us what we need. So what, what does any of this have to do with university ministry or leading your family into faith or sharing the truth and love of the gospel with your friends? What, what's the connection here? How, how does this all come together? This is it. Jesus is calling us to step out of the crowd and put our faith into action. Jesus wants, to, wants us to step away from the crowd and put our faith into action. And when we do this, we can trust him to know us and give us what we need. Did you notice the crowd in the story? We didn't talk much about the crowd. But the house is packed, and our culture tells us when there's a full house, it's a good thing. A big crowd means there's a lot happening, there's momentum, lives are being changed. This is what we seem to think, but it's not necessarily true. It just means that there's a lot of people there. In, in Mark's gospel, the crowd is never a measure of spiritual growth and success. The crowd is always, from, from Mark's point of view, the crowd is always a hindrance and a distraction to what Jesus wants to do. If, if you, you know, read through this gospel, there are times where Jesus looks around, sees that the crowd is too big, and starts saying outrageous things just to thin it out a little bit. You know, the crowd here in Mark chapter 2 is a hindrance. It's an obstruction to what Jesus wants to do. They were so self-centered that they couldn't see, they couldn't make room for a man who needed to be healed. They were so focused on their, their own needs and their own issues. They were there because they wanted something from Jesus. But it wasn't what they wanted. Jesus wants us to step out of the crowd, to get away from our self-centeredness, our self-focus, he wants us to link arms with two or three others and go out and find people who need to be brought to Jesus. He knows them. He created them. He can give them what they need. And in faith, we believe this is true, but true faith is always linked to action. If we believe it's true that God gives us what we need, if, if we believe it's true that Jesus knows us better than ourselves, then we need to put that faith into action and link arms with others and go out and find people who need to be brought to Jesus. My dream for Chi Alpha, my dream for our church, is that we'll become like these four guys who bring their paralyzed friend to the feet of Jesus. My dream for us is that as a community, we'll realize that only Jesus can truly help us. And then we do something about it because true faith is always linked to action. The national leaders of the, the nationwide campus ministries uh, get together once or twice a year. Um, so they, they get together to, to, to pray with each other, to pray for each other, to strategize, to talk about things that are coming down the road and, and plan. So groups like, like Chi Alpha 
um, crew, intervarsity, navigators, others, uh, they get together. And several, um, a couple of years ago, there was a prophetic message in one of these meetings. We believe that God still speaks to us uh, through prophetic words. And there was a message in one of these meetings that the university campuses in America are going to experience a great awakening. And they, they just kind of, they were, there was actually at crew headquarters in, in a board, boardroom. They start looking at, around at each other and they realize this is a word from God. There is a, a student awakening that is coming. And this prophecy was re- repeated in a couple of other settings over, over the following year or so. And the leaders of these national ministries said, this is something we need to take seriously and plan for. So we're believing that this awakening will touch every campus in America. And when it happens, it won't be the first time. So if, if you ever study like a, like a history of revivals in America, most of the time they started on college campuses. At various points in the 1700s and 1800s, spiritual renewal swept across the colleges of our country, most of which were located in the Northeast at the time. Uh, during one of these awakening periods, Half of the student population at Yale and a third of the students at Princeton became followers of Jesus. Just totally transformed those universities. It's amazing history. And if you know anything about colleges, universities, if you spend 10 minutes on a university campus in our day, you might have trouble believing that anything like that can happen again. Right? It takes a lot of faith to believe that there's an awakening coming to our campuses where a third or a half of the students could be confronted with the truth of the gospel. That Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. And because he created you, because he knows you, he's gonna give you what you need. Earlier this week, I came across a quotation from A.W. Tozer that is relevant to every season. I'll have Pastor Kevin come now. Tozer wrote, Anything God has ever done, he can do now. Anything God has ever done anywhere, he can do here. Anything God has ever done for anyone, he can do for you. He can do it. He can do it on our campuses. He can do it in our families and workplaces. So let's put our faith into action.